We're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 6 tonight. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's begin reading at verse 9 of uh, the 6th chapter of Hebrews. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope and to the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us tonight as we study this critically important passage. And I pray that we might, as a result of uh, meditating upon what you have to say, that we might enter into the peace that you purchased for us upon the cross when you shed your precious blood to the end that we might be saved. So help us tonight to understand these things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message tonight is Things Hard to Be Understood. It's the third message that I've brought here in the services uh, based on what the Apostle Peter had to say about the writings of the Apostle Paul, that he wrote some things that were hard to be understood. And uh, I'm not going to go back and review a lot of what was said. We don't have the time. But the thing that I have discovered is that a lot of people struggle with assurance of salvation. And, and the reason is because there are certain things about the message from heaven 
that people have a difficult time uh, grasping. And so I want to begin by explaining a little bit of the difficulty and why a lot of the things that Paul wrote were difficult to understand, which in the past messages I explained that what Paul said was really quite simple when you understand it. So we need to understand it. We need to understand what God is saying, and when we do, it's going to be simple. The message of salvation is very simple. But I'm going to tell you there are a lot of people that struggle with assurance of salvation. And so I'm going to share with you some things that I have learned over the years because I've been a victim of this very problem. And uh, I do not think that it's uncommon. I think it's a very common problem. And so I'm going to begin by explaining something that will help us enter into the nature of the problem. After studying the scriptures for a period of time, one of the things that you're going to realize, I believe, is that the Bible is written with two perspectives in mind. One is the perspective of God as he looks down at the world. The other perspective is the perspective of man as he considers God and the world and life and himself and all of these things. And it's a totally different perspective. One of the reasons that I know that this is true is because the Lord said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. That's two different perspectives. But the other thing that I'd like to introduce you to in the way of a thought, if you've never thought about these things before, is that when it comes to the perspective of God, there is no element of doubt. There is no element of doubt. One of the reasons we know that there is no element of doubt is because the entire Bible is a prophecy concerning the future. Well, how could there be an element of doubt in a God that could write future history before it ever even happens with rigid accuracy? And so this is the perspective of God when it comes to his faith. But what about the faith of man? Well, the Bible talks about faith, but there's two perspectives that we have to understand in order to grasp the message of Scripture. When it comes to the faith of man, there's always an element of doubt. Always. A logical proof of this is what it says in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1. We do not know what a day is going to bring forth. That's what it, that's what it says. Okay, if that's the human condition, if we cannot know what a day is going to bring forth, how can our faith, which is human faith, have any assurance concerning the future? Folks, 
It's so logical when you think about it. And God has written the scriptures to teach us that there's a world of difference between his faith, the faith that he has in himself, as compared to the faith of man and his ignorance concerning what tomorrow is going to be like. The reason people struggle with assurance of salvation is because it's a future event. Dying and then standing before the Lord is a future event, and we have no knowledge concerning what a day is going to bring forth. Therefore, the problem of struggling with assurance of salvation is very, very real, and it's very, very common. I don't know what your situation is. I, so many of you I haven't sat down and talked with, but I have related in this church how that I have struggled with these things over the years. And in these struggles, I have gone to the only source that you can go to to resolve the problem, and that's the Word of God. And so what I'm going to teach tonight is what I've learned. And I believe that it's unrefutable. I really do. I believe it's an unrefutable message because it's right here in print. All we have to do is read it and we'll see it. When it comes to the faith of God, and one of the reasons it tells us in this passage that we read that God swore by himself because he could swear by no greater is because his revelation is that of showing us that human faith uh, is not like his at all. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. There is wisdom that comes from above, and then there is wisdom that is earthly and sensual and devilish. And this is true when it comes to faith. The faith of God is without element of doubt. That's critical to understand if you're struggling with this issue. If you're trying to work up the faith to enter into the doctrine of eternal security, you'll never get there. It's impossible. And the reason is because the future is not here yet. And we do not know what tomorrow is going to bring forth. We just do not. And so a lot of people wonder and they struggle with this. When that day finally gets here, will I actually be saved? Will the Lord actually look at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Uh, enter into the blessing of the Lord. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have struggled with this many times over the years, but I don't anymore. And the reason is because I've learned to do what Abraham eventually learned to do, and that's believe God. Folks, you can't believe in yourself. The Bible tells us all over the place to have no confidence in the flesh. And what do we know? Well, the Bible tells us we know nothing yet, as we ought to know. Apart from God, we'll be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And that includes the doctrine of eternal security. You'll never be able to enter into it 
if you try to do it with human understanding, you cannot do it. You have to enter into the understanding of God. And so this is what the problem is when it comes to these things that are hard to be understood. The reason the doctrine of eternal security is uh, hard for people to enter into is because they're trying to enter into it themselves with what wherewithal the flesh can provide and entering into that kind of assurance and you cannot do it that way. Um, we need to learn to believe God, believe God. And so this is what Abraham eventually learned. That's one of, to me, one of the delightful things to discover in Romans chapter 4, the way that chapter begins is the issue of what has Abraham found? What did he find? Well, in studying that, if you stay on that track of trying to figure out what it was that Abraham eventually found, it's in the scripture what it was that he actually found. And so this passage that we're going to look at tonight and a couple of other places, um, we're going to discover that Abraham actually had the same problem that Dwight Creech had for a long time. He tried to believe God with human faith, and it doesn't work. And so... There's a vast difference between the faith of Christ and the faith of man. I wish that we had time to go back and study all of these passages because it's fascinating uh, when you pursue this thought and you begin to see how the Lord has laid it out so that it's really pretty simple. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to speak tonight because I, in a way that I'm assuming that in this church, we've got a church full of people that study the Bible. And so when I mention some of these things, it's going to come to your mind and you're going to be familiar with it. And so I think that's why we can skip over looking at some of these passages. And you will remember when I mention these things that it's, it's actually what the passage is teaching. If you remember when God came to Abraham and made promises to him, you begin to see these things beginning Genesis chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, that, that section of the book of Genesis. Um, he, he basically told him, that he was going to inherit the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, that his seed was going to be like the stars of heaven, innumerable, and so forth. 
He told him that uh, <clears throat> he was going to have a child. And, of course, Sarah was barren. And he told him that he and Sarah, they were going to have a child. But you remember the story how that they were really old, and it didn't seem that that would be possible, at least with the faith that Abraham had, which is what I'm trying to do is develop a message around the contrast between the faith of God and the faith of man. In the New Testament, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted in him for righteousness. But when you go back and read the account, you find out that's not the case. You have to understand how the Lord meant it when you get into the New Testament. Because when you read the Old Testament, you find out that, uh, uh, first of all, uh, he didn't really see how in the world it was possible for somebody old to have children. They were past the age. Uh, Abraham doubted it. He didn't believe God. Sarah laughed. She thought it was something on the edge on the, in the form of a joke that a person, you know, uh, as old as she was, 90 years old, could give birth to a child. So unbelief was what you discover when you go back and read the event. When he goes traveling... Uh, with his beautiful wife, he had an incredibly good-looking wife. And you remember the story on two separate occasions uh, when it came to the promise of God and how he was supposed to be the father of, you know, the seed that would come. Uh, he risked his wife uh, being uh, molested by another man, Abimelech. On two different occasions he did this. He said, you go tell them that you're my sister and not my wife because if you're so good looking, they'll kill me to get you. And so anyway, that's part of the unbelief on the part of Abraham. Um, and so then the, the, the idea of, of them having a, a child was so unlikely to Abraham, he decided he was going to help God out while there was still time and he had a little bit of youth left in him. And so he and Sarah get together, and they talk about him fathering a child with Agar. So when you read that, you begin to wonder to yourself, did Abraham really believe God? Or was human faith becoming a factor in what we read there? Well, it was a factor. And so this was a huge mistake. Uh, when Ishmael was born, 
It, it causes a lot of trouble. Human faith does that. It causes a lot of trouble when a person just simply does not believe God. And so God had to prove that his word was true and that he does know the future. He does control the future. He controls his universe. And so at a certain time, Sarah becomes pregnant with the child, Isaac. And uh, Isaac is born. And as a result of this evidence, Abraham believed God. But Abraham is not some kind of super saint that believed God and all of a sudden these wonderful things happened. No, he didn't believe God. And I think what is true of Abraham is true of us in so many ways, and it was certainly true of me. And I can't tell you how many years of my life went by where I struggled with this. I did not understand faith as it's presented in the Bible. And so I struggled with human faith, trying to get it to be strong enough that I could actually enter into this doctrine of eternal security. Folks, it cannot happen. And so I would remind ourselves of the fact that the Bible is written with two perspectives. And if you do not understand this, as you read the whole Bible, you fail to see how serious this situation is and this divide between a holy God and sinful man. There is no element of doubt in the word of God. It's prophetic to the core with rigid accuracy. But when it comes to the faith of man, there's always going to be an element of doubt. And so... The promise was made to Abraham indirectly, and I'm going to show you from the scriptures in the New Testament how that the promises were actually not made directly to Abraham. They were made directly to the promised seed, which is Christ. And you might wonder why. Well, it actually tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, it's because... God, when he looked at Abraham, he knew that this, this promise could not be sure in some kind of interchange between God and Abraham. And, of course, Abraham proved that. And so it tells us plainly in this sixth chapter that God, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Why did he do that? Because he's teaching us the doctrine of eternal security. It has nothing to do with human faith. It has to do with the faith of God and him doing what he says he can do and us eventually believing that. There's a difference. There's a world of difference. 
I like to explain it this way. It's top-down faith, not bottom-up faith. Bottom-up faith is the natural man in the flesh that does not know what tomorrow may bring forth trying to enter into the doctrine of eternal security, and it's impossible. You cannot do it. And so when the Bible teaches us in a number of places that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteous, this is the Lord's way of saying, listen, Abraham did not believe in himself. He was believing me. He was recognizing the difference between his struggles with faith and my complete absence of struggles with my faith. And so, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Because, folks, God cannot lie. Uh, so shall the word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It will accomplish that which I please and prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. That's Isaiah 55 and verse 11. That is the doctrine of eternal security. The word that goes out of my mouth, the word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. There came a point where Abraham got that. He began to understand that. And there was a shift in his thinking away from his struggle to have faith, to believe God, to believing God. So I don't know what your situation is sitting out there tonight. I, I can tell you this, Jesus Christ is fixing to come back very soon. And if you're not saved, this is a very important message for you to understand. Because you need the doctrine of eternal security. Or you're going to live in fear of him coming back. And because you do not know what a day is going to bring forth, you might be sitting out there thinking, well... I sure hope he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but I'm not sure he will. Folks, that's a problem. You can't get there like that. And so I'd like for you to turn with me to Galatians. Um, we've looked at these before, and Pastor Garrison has brought some great messages on these very thoughts, and I don't see how we can not look at them again because they're critical in our understanding and our grasp of this point that I'm making that there's two perspectives in Scripture. And if we don't know what those two perspectives are, we'll never be able to harmonize what the Bible is telling us about this. But 
Look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. And if I were you, I'd put an asterisk by this verse so that you can go back and look at it every once in a while and satisfy your soul in terms of what it's saying. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's top-down faith, folks. This is not bottom-up faith. This is top-down faith. That's what we got to get hold of. Even we have, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now look at verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live, notice this, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is why the Lord swore by himself, because he could swear by no greater. He could not enter into some kind of promise or oath with the flesh. We're not capable of handling that kind of thing. We do not know in our world with our earthly wisdom, how anything can be eternally secure. Because we don't control the future. We do not know what a day is going to bring forth. He does. And that's why we've got to turn away from human faith. We've got to turn away from human wisdom. And we have to embrace the faith that God has in himself, that he loves us. He loves us more than we could ever know. And he provided for us everything that we need in order to live forever in his presence, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. He has to do this. And the only way that he can do it is give us his righteousness as a free gift. And that's the message of the Bible. And I'm telling you, people a lot of times stumble right there because that seems to be too simple. You mean God would look at me, a hell-deserving sinner, and he would love me enough to just give me something that otherwise I could never have. And that is to be as holy as he is. Unblameable as Jesus Christ, who was eternally innocent. And unreprovable, and listen, in his sight. That's what it says. Well... The gift of God. That's the only way a person can go to heaven. Is receive the gift of God. There's no other way. Now look at Gen uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3. 
Galatians chapter 3. And I'll show you something that's really kind of obvious when you think about it. Look at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 3. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And you see what we just read? To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. But Paul knew that we would stumble right there if he didn't say what follows next. So pay attention to what he says next. He saith not. In other words, if you were thinking a certain way, stop. Because you're missing something. Because God did not directly make the promise to Abraham. Because Abraham was not capable of understanding the faith of God. He wasn't, and he proved it. He sure did with what he did with his wife in the Abimelech situation and um, the situation with Hagar. Just unbelief. So Paul says, He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. Folks, the promise was made to Christ. It was made directly to Christ. Well, why does it say it that way? Why is that important to understand? Because God is actually reversing the problem of the Garden of Eden. I've said this a number of times, but the whole Bible is designed, it's God's strategy in reversing what happened. Adam and Eve went off on their own, trying to figure out how to be happy without God, how to have their own paradise, how to have eternal hope without God. It doesn't work. It does not work. And so the Lord has written the Bible in a way that totally reverses what happened when Adam and Eve went away from God. It forces us to come back to God into union and communion with him in a way that is equal to the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's equal to it. And so the promise was made to Christ, but if a person does not have the spirit of Christ, it tells us there in the New Testament that he's none of his. You have to receive Christ as your life. That's what Galatians 2.20 said. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Listen, that gave him eternal security because the promise was made not to Abraham. It's not some kind of contract or dialogue that God could enter into with Abraham. That's why he said he swore with himself because he could swear by no greater. 
that he was going to do what he said to Abraham. Well, Abraham eventually understood this. He understood it. And so Paul develops this great truth, how that we need the life of Christ who had the promise as our life. And when you receive him, you receive the promise with this kind of assurance. He swore by himself because he could swear by no greater. What he was going to do for Abraham, Abraham believed that. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Folks, you cannot believe enough without Christ. It's only in Christ that you can do this. If you look with me at... Let, let's take a look at this. I, I hate to go through this message and not point this out. Romans chapter 9. I want to show you something that is hard for people. Another one of those things that's hard for people to understand. But when you see it, I think the way the Scripture actually explains it, it's very simple. It's not hard to be understood at all. But I want you to read with me Romans chapter 9 and beginning at verse 1. And I want you to read with me uh, the first three verses. And I'm going to show you a verse that's hard to be understood until you understand it. And then it's very simple. Verse 1, I say the truth in Christ now, that's critical. You need to put parentheses around in Christ or you're not going to get it. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish, now listen to this, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, if you read that and you don't understand what was actually said, you're going to view Paul as some kind of super saint. Because what he was saying here was that he would be willing to go to hell and burn forever so that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, could be saved. But that's because of a failure to understand verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. Let me tell you something, folks, and you can take this to the bank. There is but one person in the whole universe for all eternity that was willing to suffer the penalty of hell for the lost but Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul could say this. The proof of this is what he said in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. I'm a dead man. I've died to what I am because I deserve death. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Okay, it was Christ in Paul that was saying this. It was not Paul. A person who doesn't see that is never going to be able to understand this verse, I don't think. Because it's Jesus Christ. There's no human 
that has ever lived that would have been willing to suffer eternal punishment for anyone, not even one, but Jesus Christ would for one. He sure would. And so it's very important to understand these things. But let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. And let's look at verse 19. I've shown you how the promises were made in verse 16 to Christ. It was not directly to Abraham. It was to, to Christ. But look at verse 19 of chapter 3. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. How could that be any clearer? The promise was not made to Abraham, folks. The promise was made to Christ. And this is why he swore by himself, because he could swear by no greater. God cannot enter into some kind of covenant relationship with man. He cannot do it. We do not have the sufficiency to enter into a relationship with God like that. Look at verse 22. But the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That is what Abraham found. I believe in our studies, if we fail to see this, we're always going to be sort of in the shadows and sort of maybe in the dark about how to embrace this doctrine of eternal security. Um, let's, uh, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 6 because there are two things there's two things. Time goes by so fast up here in this place. Uh, there's two things that are developed here in this passage. One is the promise, and the other is an oath. Now, I'm going to have to go over this quickly because you're going to be angry with me if I stay in here too long, and I know you're tired. And so I'm going to give you the best shot at this and getting it in a hurry because these are critically important things. And what's so beautiful about these two things, the promise and the oath, is that these are the two things that are immutable. It can never be changed. It can never be changed. And it's the anchor of our soul. Sure and steadfast. Now you can write eternal security all over those verses in Hebrews chapter 6, because this is what it's about. It's about the doctrine of eternal security. You cannot understand the doctrine of eternal security apart from understanding these, this passage right here. These are things that Paul wrote that were hard to be understood. The reason I know it's hard to be understood by people is because I'm telling you, man in his nature 
is trying to put it all together in his own mind the way he thinks and his way doesn't work. Conversion has to do with a radical change from that way of thinking to thinking God's thoughts after him. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. And so there has to be a radical change in the way we read the scriptures or we'll never get it. If you're trying to understand this book with human reason, you'll never get there. I promise you that. You'll never get there. And so, in our studies of this sixth chapter, we saw how that there were some who became acquainted with the message from heaven. And it, it tells us that they were once enlightened, they tasted the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and tasted the word of God, uh, the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come. But they turned away. And so the question is, why did they turn away? Well, in our previous study, we learned that it had to do with the free will trying to deal with a horrible message from heaven. What was the horrible message from heaven? The horrible message from heaven was you got to learn to hate your life. You got to learn to die to yourself. You've got to believe that you deserve to burn in hell forever. You've got to believe that there's none good, no, not one. You've got to believe that you're evil. You're not good. There's none good but one, that is God. And so these people begin to deal with that. The message from heaven, after they get close to God and find out what the message actually is, and they turn away. And Paul says you can't get them back. If you turn away, you can't get them back. Now listen to me, folks. If you turn away, you're on your own. Dealing with eternity right by yourself. If you turn away from the message from heaven, you are on your own with earthly wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And there's no hope for a person like that. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. You cannot come up with a truth that outshines God's truth. To the law, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. That's the message of this book. And so the Lord is telling us here through the Apostle Paul in verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded by the things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And then in verse 11, and I'm having to speed up, verse 11, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. What is that? That's eternal security. That's what it is. The message is you cannot enter into the doctrine of eternal security with human faith. It cannot happen. You have to receive the faith of God, the faith that he has in himself, 
and he has total control of the future and has written a book to prove it, to prove it. And here's what he says. If you will turn away from everything that you are and learn to hate your life and die to everything that you are, every thought that you've ever had, and let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, then you can enter into this promise. But not without Christ. And this is how God in his genius has reversed the problem of the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve went away. This forces you back to Christ so that the only way that you can have eternal security is have Christ as your life. Well, when you've got that, let me tell you what you've got. Holiness. Unblameableness. Unreprovableness in his sight. And the only way you can have that is the gift of God. He has to give it to you. Folks, if you're struggling with whether or not you're going to go to heaven or not, I can tell you the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. Believe God. Just believe God. And so there's two things here, a promise and an oath. The promise is absolute because it's actually a promise to Christ. But then there's an oath. There's an oath. Now, if we had time to turn to it, I'm going to tell you what the reference is. It's Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11. You go read it, and you'll find out how the Lord is using the term oath in this passage. The oath was more important in his thinking than the promise. Now, think about it. What if somebody came and promised you some great thing? And they just it was just word of mouth. I, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to promise you this. Well, in the human experience, when somebody promises something, we know that a lot of times people do not follow through. So in a relationship on earth with somebody that promises you something where you're not quite sure that it's going to actually happen because it's so wonderful, it's so good. The person says, I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to, I'm going to turn this swear, this swearing that I'm making with you in the promise into a written word. I'm going to write it down for you. And so God did in the law. He wrote it down. He wrote it down. And Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11 tells us that that's what the oath is. It's the written law of God. Now, if we had time to develop this, and I wish we did, and you go back, you read about the promise to Abraham, and then you have Moses and the law. Well, in order for us to go to heaven, 
we have to be perfect. And as Brother Charles brought out so great, so eloquently, I, I believe, about the, the leaven and how there cannot be any leaven in our thinking. Well, Jesus Christ instructed Moses to take the tablets of stone and put them in the ark. Now, if you study this out, you'll find out that the word ark means coffin. That's what it was. And he told him to take the tablets of stone, the law, and put them in that coffin. Why did he do that? Because that coffin is a picture, it's an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. Moses, you remember, was coming down from the mount the first time with the law, and he threw them down and broke them. And so the Lord told him, you come back up here a second time, and you go ahead and chisel out the stone. I did it the first time, but you're going to do it this time. You chisel out the stone, and I'm going to write with my finger the Ten Commandments on that second set of stones. But I want you to take those and put them in the ark. Why did he say that? Because Jesus Christ would not break the law in one point. There's no leaven in Jesus Christ. Absolutely innocent. Absolutely good for his word. He cannot lie. And so he wrote it down. But that ark had on top of it a mercy seat. And that's where the blood was sprinkled. It was prefiguring the death of Christ on the cross. And so the Lord is teaching us here through the Apostle Paul something that's so beautiful. A promise. And he ties it in with Abraham. He shows us the fallacy of going too far that direction and not understanding to whom the promise was actually made. It was made to Christ. And so when the promise is made to Christ, the promised seed, and when he kept the law and we received Christ as our life, then guess what? We have eternal security. He succeeds and changing us, converting us from being hell-deserving sinners to being like him, holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. This is the gift of God. He gives it to us as a free gift. Folks, if we turn away from this, by the way, a will or an oath is of no value, according to the ninth chapter of Hebrews, until the death of the testator. And so when it comes to a will, the person who makes that will has to die. And he did. But guess what? When the testator dies, it can never be changed. This is the message of this chapter right here. When the testator dies, then what is written is good for all eternity. It cannot be changed. It cannot ever be reversed. And so, Paul says 
in verse 18, that by two immutable things, the promise and the oath. Well, let's read verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable, changeless things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to, say, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which is the future, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Think about this language, anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. He did that for us. And he's now given us these two things that are immutable. The promise, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And the oath, which was his will in view of the fact that he was going to die and it could never be changed, never be changed, that he would give us eternal life if we would turn away from everything that we are and trust him, Abraham did, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Our time is gone. We, there's so much more that could be said, uh, but I think enough has been said for us to understand the point. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments we've had to study I think one of the most critically important passages in all the Word of God. What a tragedy that people would live their life struggling, never really able to know that their sins have been really put away and that you're going to actually welcome us into heaven. It's a tragedy that people could live in fear like that. And this is not your desire. You're a good God and a loving Father. And you do not want us to be afraid of you. You want us to be afraid of ourselves. That's what, where the fear needs to be. We need to love you and run to you and embrace you and receive you. And I pray that this would be the case as people listen to these things and study these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.